0: Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of two lips one Mike. i'm anna and i'm Cushy. so we have a bit of a jam-packed special for everyone today so it's going to be our powwow episode is what i've called it because it's going to contain a few contentious things i mean usually when we discuss things cushy you and i are usually on the same side about mm. certain things um and i'm worried that with this one Some of the steam of my argument has probably gone out a bit because I've done some further reading (laughs) over the last week or so. That's not a bad thing. I know, but it's a bit annoying content-wise because I was like, oh, this is really good content. All right. So to get us started, we have Mm -hmm. the election coming up next month. Mm -hmm. Federal election. That's right. Mm -hmm. And um, a few interesting candidates have arisen throughout the course of this. Mm -hmm. I just was flicking on the age before and saw that one over, um, I think it's Senator Anning's people, have has been disqualified because she's bankrupt.
1: Oh, <laughs> yay! I thought
0: I'd never be happy for that law. Just what we want in this country. <laughs> um, but someone who's been making a lot of waves is actually Kate Ashmore, the mm. Liberal candidate for the new um, electorate of McNamara. So what's she been saying this week? Um, so I've been paying particular attention to what's been going on with
1: Kate Ashmore because I actually used to live in what I hope is not her electorate. Um, it used to be Melbourne Ports, mm. and it's been a long-standing Labor electorate. Michael Danby. Yeah, Michael Danby. Um, not one of my favourite people, but anyhow. Um, <laughs> so we've got a really interesting sway competition in the new seat or electorate of McNamara. So we've got the Liberal candidate, Kate Ashmore, We've got the Labor candidate, Josh Burns, and for the life of me, I cannot remember the name of the Greens candidate,
0: but I do know that they are
1: competitive, um, at least to the extent that they're probably going to be the ones that decide whether or not it's Labor or Liberals that actually pick up the seat. Right. Um, So Kate Ashmore, I've known a little bit about from like various stalkings on social media. She's very active on Twitter. She is. She is a lawyer by profession. Um, She's got her own law firm and she used to be really uh, closely affiliated with the Victorian Women Lawyers Association. So that's where I first heard about her and I just remember seeing her put up posts that it's hard to pinpoint because it was never like they sort of screamed, um, you know, bigotry or conservativism, but I definitely got the impression that she had conservative leanings. Um, so I got really interested when I found out she was actually running for the electorate of McNamara. Um, but she's made a whole host of gaffes in the last couple <laughs> of weeks, if we can
0: label them that. Well, a lot of them have been uncovered I just just feel like whoever the opponents are are doing a heavy dirt campaign on her. Yeah, I think it was all triggered by a recent debate
1: between the Labor candidate, Josh Burns, and her, where she essentially alluded to him not being proud of his Jewish heritage. So both of the candidates are of Jewish heritage. The electorate Mm -hmm. is Heavily populated by Jewish peoples, and it was seen as a real personal and stinging attack to put on an opponent.
0: Well, to put it in context, the debate was I think it was being held in front of a Jewish audience, Mm. and so that is perhaps another reason why she was kind of doing a bit of chest beating about why she thinks she's the better Jewish candidate um, between her and Josh Burns. But what does she say exactly? Um, so essentially she was trying to chest beat,
1: like you said, by saying that she had a, and I might be pronouncing this incorrectly, but, um, Mezua or a Mezuzua, I don't know exactly how to pronounce it, but it's a Jewish artifact. And she said that she had one on the door of her campaign office and then confronted the Labor candidate, Josh Burns, about whether or not he had one on his campaign door. (laughs) Um... Not sure why that's entirely relevant to the question of, you know, you being a suitable candidate for the federal parliament. But, yeah, it was a really personal and stinging attack and it provoked a lot of public outrage. And as a result, I think what's happened is Josh Burns' campaign and essentially any campaign that isn't her campaign has done a lot of um, dirty work into finding out what other questionable
0: things that she's done. So in the space of the last two days, Um, there was a revelation yesterday that she wrote a letter to the editor and this was a number of years ago which is why I'm saying wow they're really digging through the dirt files. She wrote a letter to the editor where she wrote about private schools being much more superior. She was saying the vast majority of those in um, teachers in the private system are much more superior than those in the public system. She's said she was drawing that on her own experience having been to a public school that she didn't mention, Mm -hmm. but she was alumni of Horford Grammar School, which is Mm -hmm. one of the bigger um, independent schools in this very wealthy area of Caulfield. Today it's come out again that she's made another gaffe, this time in relation to our former Prime Minister, um, Julia Gillard, when she was still Prime Minister, and Bill Heffernan, that senator, who made that comment about her being deliberately barren or something mm. like that, mm. and she said um, that Bill Heffernan raised an interesting point and being childless doesn't automatically invalidate one's opinions, nor does it make one unable to make a, con- a valuable contribution to society. Far from it, good leaders need not be parents, but childless leaders invariably lack one of the most important qualities of leadership, empathy.
1: Wait, what? Yeah.
0: Oh my god,
1: that is outrageous.
0: What is that saying about all those... I just... Okay, now now that it's got... Fun fact, Anna, you lack empathy. You're not a suitable leader. (laughs) So do you, apparently. You know, all that community work you do and all the, um, you know, selfless CLC work and that shit, you lack empathy. (laughs) Oh my god, I did not know about that latest gaffe. It's It's all coming to a head now because... And it doesn't make any sense because you said she's a part of VWL, which is apparently an organisation, like, we've both, full disclosure, I've been both, both being part of it, mm-hmm. but an organisation that is there to promote women and women in the workplace and stuff like that. But she's perpetuating um, bullshit. Yeah.
1: That's what I mean. Like, And I really wish I had some of these social media posts on hand, but I always remember getting the impression that she was one of these pretend progressives that latched onto causes for her own personal agenda. So when I found out that she was running as the Liberal candidate in this very marginal electorate and she was running as a Liberal, I was, like, not surprised in the slightest.
0: I um, was because she always, like you said, prides herself on being quite progressive. I didn't mm, think she'd align herself with the Liberals. Mm, yeah, yeah. You can be progressive in certain ways
1: and very conservative in other ways. Um, I know she also has a real strong tendency for um, posting a lot of really Zionist, She's a Zionist messages,
0: definitely. yeah, on
1: social media, which I find really problematic. But. Um, Yeah, so I'm actually quite happy to see the
0: real her being uncovered. Um, I'm just so offended by her comments about public schools. Like for someone who's supposedly going to be a candidate and going to essentially be in control of those purse strings while mm. we're still having these funding debates and wars and whatnot, if if that goes to show where her priorities are, I wouldn't want her in charge of that. Well, that's why I say it's a really good
1: thing that these stories are coming out because now we know where she actually stands on really important public policy issues. So <sighs> no doubt public schools are not a priority for her. So if you're a voter in the electorate of McNamara and public schools are a priority for you, now you're better informed about whether or not she's actually the right candidate for your electorate.
0: I guess the thing about politics now is that it's really a different era of politics. Like I said, I am trying to be a bit um, careful about how much I heap on to Kate Ashmore. These comments were made, I think the letter to the editor was 2011 or Mm -hmm. 2007. It was something, like I looked at the time and I was like, wow, they really dug out the dirt files. And so things that you do now Mm. as like young and dumb and think it has no implications, it may one day be plucked out somehow. And um, I think that's the consequence of being a politician in this era. In fairness, she was still a wife, a mother, and a professional
1: at the time she made these comments. It's That's not true. like she was a teenager that you know just made comments off the cuff. They it's- were still pretty well informed comments, and she hasn't actually come out and refuted them and said that she's actually had a change of heart and that her priorities have changed. I think she apologized
0: for the private school, public school comment. Apologized. I thought she just said she regretted the way that she phrased them. Is that a bit over- which I take as a non-apology? <laughs> Oh, you know,
1: I thought that was an apology. You know, it's like when someone apologizes for the offense they've caused and not the statement <laughs> they've made. It's like, no, you're still saying that the recipient of your message is the problem, not you as the person that delivers the message. Not an
0: apology. All right, moving along, we're going to talk about um the very interesting public outcry that's occurred in the um in the context of the Boris Ristevsky sentence that was handed down last week. Um, so, Kushi, what happened with that particular case?
1: Yeah, so um, Boris Ristevski was charged with the murder of his wife, Karen Ristevsky. Um, the case had gone through what's called a committal, so a mini trial that was heard in the magistrate's court. And the magistrate found that there was enough evidence upon which to actually commit um, Boris Rostevsky to stand trial in the Supreme Court. And then uh, what emerged shortly before the commencement of the trial was um, a plea deal whereby Boris Rostevsky pled guilty to a charge of manslaughter. Um, He was subsequently sentenced to a maximum um, period of nine years behind bars with a non-parole period of six years. And given that he spent um, 491 days in custody, um, he's essentially going to be uh, released um, in or around the time that he turns 60. That puts it in pers- I didn't realise he was that young. Yeah, he's 55 right now. Right. Yeah. So um, I think one of the reasons why this case provoked a lot of outrage was the fact that it took place on the heels of another case where um, the accused had punched a doctor. That's right, the Box Hill doctor. Yeah, in the hospital and he'd received a 10-year prison sentence and then this followed shortly on the heels of that and people were of the view that, well, why is this case being treated differently to that case where the offence is the same? Um, And there were particular factors at play in this case. For example, um, Boris Wastewski still hasn't disclosed
0: the circumstances surrounding how he actually killed his wife. And it took 18 months before he was arrested, right? It was a significant period of time because they weren't able to locate her body. Like, she literally just went missing. Yeah. And this is one of those cases, similar to Jill Ma in the sense, um, and... Unfortunately, with the Jill Meyer incident, it all kind of wrapped around really quickly. Mm. But with um, Karen Rustevsky, she was missing for a really long period of time mm. and no one had any idea about what was going on. Yeah, and Boris Rostevsky
1: was playing, you know, the heartbroken husband. He, he carried was, the
0: casket. The yeah, basket.
1: he was a pallbearer at the funeral. Yeah. He was doing interviews in the media. So one can understand the outrage sort of... Um, that's directed against him for this.
0: So I wanted to talk a bit more about that outrage because as you... Like, we've worked enough in sort of the family violence sector and Mm -hmm. we follow a lot of people like Terrain Chawa and Clem Ford and other um, feminists like that who um, really seized on in this case Mm -hmm. and were really outraged about it because, as you know, family violence is a major issue, but sentencing-wise perhaps not um, taken as seriously as, say, a coward punch or mm-hmm. something like that. So I'm just going to read something short that um, Clementine Ford wrote in the immediate aftermath of it. So she says, Boris Pasternak killed his wife and tried to cover it up. He obstructed the ensuing investigation. He has denied Karen's family any form of closure or understanding about the last days of her life. Yet despite his, and this is the word I couldn't pronounce, Obstreperousness and clear lack of remorse, this week Justice Christopher Beale issued Ristevsky a maximum prison term of nine years with a non-parole period of six. With time served, he could be released in as little as five. Folks, this is our justice system in action. It's one in which you can almost more easily kill a woman than divorce her. Cover it up, deny all involvement, and then finally, after grudgingly admitting your crime, refuse to offer any explanation. And, hey, with good behaviour, you'll be out of jail at the same time as the bloke who accidentally ran his bus into a bridge. Mm. So what are your thoughts about that? And, you know, full disclosure, we both do follow Clem Ford and mostly agree with her.
1: (laughs) I have a lot of respect for Clem Ford and I do agree that Um, homicides involving family violence have for too long been treated as less seriously than those that don't involve family violence. Um, But what I took issue with was a lot of the outrage being directed towards the judge in this particular case. And that the judge had more or less imposed a
0: very lenient sentence. I think it wasn't so much the judge, it was the justice system as a whole, like a, the criminal justice system, because yeah. I, don't, I didn't even know it was Justice Beale who handed down the sentence. And also, um, nowadays, you can actually hear them delivering the sentence, mm. and it was really measured. Most people don't take that step of actually listening to a job. Oh you can hear it on the though. on the news though, they were playing snippets of it.
1: Yeah, but again, those would be snippets, like telltale snippets of what would have been quite a lengthy handing down of a sentence. Mm. Um and I don't necessarily disagree with the fact that different homicides are treated differently. My issue is that if you are outraged by it, then your response should be to try and lobby your politicians, so the ones who actually make laws around offences like this, to
0: actually change the law. I don't know what the change in the law would be for this circumstance though, because this was, as you mentioned, charges of murder. Uh, eventually um, he pleaded guilty to manslaughter, which are very established common law offences. I don't think there's any specific statutory offence that could come out of this. Um, You could make a mandatory minimum sentence for manslaughter in circumstances involving family violence. Okay, or in circumstances where you're not cooperating and not... Yeah. Yeah. Showing police where the body is. I think look, I don't agree with that personally, but that is something that you could lobby for. I think putting aside, I, I I'm feeling a bit annoyed that we are now recording this podcast like after it's all kind of sunk in mm. because I think emotions were very high in the community. It was very heightened last week, and um now it's kind of simmered down. But mm. the point that I have last week still stands, which is I think there is a major disconnect between our justice system and the public. I think a lot of people, as you said, don't understand how the sentencing principles work and don't understand how you can marry up the fact that this guy who did such an abhorrent thing and has now admitted to it, um, and yet withheld some very crucial information about why, um, is now potentially going to be out of jail in the next six years. Mm. I, I don't think it sits very well with many people in the community who don't understand the complex rules of evidence and the complex um, sort of nature of our justice system. Yeah, we've spoken about this disconnect between the public and the justice system, and we've spoken
1: about the fact that both need to do a better job in terms of informing the other, Um, which is why I think um, this podcast that we've been listening to, um, Gertie's Law, Mm. is really on point um, because it's a podcast that's produced by the Supreme Court of Victoria and a couple of their more recent episodes have actually focused on the issue of sentencing. Yes. Um,
0: and so I, before we get to that, I just wanted to say that um, I think there was a lot of outrage focused on the fact that there was no consideration for the victims. And victims generally don't play a big role in our criminal justice mm. system. I think a lot of people in the, the community don't actually understand that. Mm. And just firsthand, I, like, um, was dealing with a matter that did, it was being prosecuted by the OPP and you get that as the lawyer for the person um essentially the witnesses they were very affronted by the fact that there is no um consideration of the damage that's done to them it's essentially a case brought on by the state against the accused but you Mm. as the victim you're no more than just their star witness i think That might be a little
1: too black and white. I mean, the victim still has a role in the court proceedings. So for example, they can actually tender a victim impact statement that can be used in a judge when handing down a sentence. Um, I know on the whole that victim impact statements don't figure significantly in the overall sentence handed down, Mm. but they still are a consideration that a judge can turn their mind to. And at the very least, it can play sort of this really cathartic role for the victim to actually feel like they are being heard throughout the
0: process. And I think that might work for some victims, but I think um, in the case of something like a sexual assault or something like that, um, as you know, a lot of sexual assault matters don't actually even proceed to court mm. and that's a decision that's not at the whim of the victim mm. it's at the whim of the opp mm. or the police well the police firstly have to authorize the brief and then it goes through that bureaucratic chain but a lot of victims don't know that mm. and so um i think they think that they have much more of a say in their own case mm. when, than they actually do and so i think that's a part of the outrage as well because you think oh i've been wrong something's happened to me therefore i have recourse It's definitely not through the criminal justice system and I think a lot of people don't understand that and that's why there's a lot of um, animosity towards our system.
1: Yeah, and again, that comes down to the fact that the justice system doesn't do a very good job in actually informing the public about what it does. So, for example, if you um, work at a prosecuting agency like the Office of Public Prosecutions... Um, you have a 2 pronged test that you have to meet when you're deciding whether or not to actually proceed with a case.
0: Yeah. And the first prong is whether or not the case has reasonable prospects of success. And that, but that comes down to other players as well, like the police doing a good brief, which yep. we know is hit and miss. It comes down to the strength of the evidence they have done in their brief. Mm-hmm. And all these other factors that you wouldn't yeah. even think about. like I'm Nothing just, to do with the actual victim. And that's, Do you have a good case and is it in the public interest? But that's why I feel like the criminal justice system doesn't sometimes... Well, it, it definitely does not operate to serve the interests of the victim. It is just a bureaucratic machine sometimes. Mm-hmm. Well, most of the time, actually, because the victim doesn't have a say in those things. So you can go and, like, report the matter to police that you'd still feel like shit when they come back and tell you, oh, actually, there's been a decision made not to press, um, not to prosecute this matter because of the strength of the evidence. Mm. Like, how shit would that make you feel, that people think you're not a credible witness even though you experienced, like, the mm. assault or the sexual assault or whatever like that? Like, I just think, and these are the times where I take off my lawyer hat and put on just, like, that community like outrage hat, Mm. which is our system is deficient. I don't think the proper recourse for a lot of things is through the criminal justice system. Like I think we should be exploring other avenues for um, victims because I don't think it serves... It obviously does not operate to serve the interests of the victim.
1: Yeah, because in some of your more inquisitorial systems around the world, they've introduced what's called a victim's advocate. So in the court process, you actually have a lawyer that specifically... Um, appointed to advocate for the needs
0: of the victim. I'm not sure how I feel about that. Yeah, like,
1: in theory, <laughs> I Sounds can understand good, but the attraction. frustrating. It's so frustrating. And what they've said, actually, is that victims are overall very dissatisfied with the process because it inevitably draws out court proceedings even yeah. more. And so they're waiting even longer to actually have their turn to, you know, have justice heard or whatever you want to call it. So, um, yeah, I think you're right. I think they're definitely... Needs to be some sort of recourse, but in my view, that's better served outside
0: of the criminal justice system. So, just going back to the Rostevsky matter, so you think it was quite a sound judgment? Um, So, full disclosure, I haven't
1: read the entire judgment, but I have read a lot of commentary surrounding it. And on the whole, I actually think that based on the sentencing principles and sentencing considerations, that The judge's reasoning does appear to be sound. I can't actually fault it. I mean, he, for example, um, has identified certain mitigating factors, for example, the fact that Boris Dostoevsky entered in a guilty plea and that entitles him to a discount, Um, the fact that he doesn't have any prior criminal history, that he's otherwise been a person of good character... But then on the other hand, is equally given weight to aggravating factors like the fact that he actually hasn't disclosed the circumstances surrounding the offending. Was he cooperating with police? No, and that was taken to be an aggravating factor that contributed to an increase in the overall sentence he
0: got. So that means if he cooperated with police, he could have gotten away with, like, two years. Well,
1: I wouldn't put a number on it, but,
0: yeah, he would have got a lesser sentence. Fuck, so that's why I see the anger, Mm -hmm. like, that people like Clem Ford and Terang Chawa and other family violence advocates mm. go into, because that's fucked. Mm. You can just go in, admit lots of things and have a good character and still allegedly good character. And um, essentially get away spot free with the manslaughter of your wife. That's what I've taken away from this. I mean. <laughs> like, that's fucked. <fart.
1: laughs> Two years Incarceration is not getting away scot-free. No,
0: it's not much for the life, I suppose. No
1: period of incarceration is going to be enough for the death of another person. Like, I don't know if this sentence is the right one, but what I'm saying is that within the confines of the law and the relevant principles and the considerations that the judge had to turn their mind to, it reads to me as a sound sentence within the
0: confines of the law. And I think that's the thing. You're speaking very much like a lawyer. Like, that is the legal framework. But I think the community are very clearly articulating that they expect more Mm. out of it now. And that's why I'm saying if you take issue with these sorts of
1: sentences being handed down in homicide matters involving family violence then the best place for recourse is your politicians who make the laws. You might want to introduce a mandatory minimum sentence when it comes to homicide with these sorts of offences. I don't know. I don't think that's a good thing for a whole host of reasons, but that's where your sort of outrage needs to be directed at changing the law. You can't blame a judge for just enforcing the law as it is.
0: Mm. And um, that brings me to what you were talking about before, which is the Gertie's Law Podcast. So, after we had a bit of a heated discussion about um, the Boris Bostefsky sentence last week, um, I I started listening to this on the recommendation of the girls from Shameless, that podcast I was talking about. And um, they were talking about sentencing, actually, coincidentally. And Mm. I would highly encourage everyone to listen to it because a part of us I think, like you're saying, channeling that anger into something constructive is actually understanding the framework in which we're working within. Mm. Um, and the thing that's always frustrated me about law is it's like a game. You need to know the rules of the game in order to win the game. But most people don't know the rules. And I think that's why I've, I'm have not obviously a corporate lawyer or anything like that, but I I feel like my goal is to make law as accessible mm-hmm. as possible to everyone mm. i don't think it should be something that is reserved for those who have graduated from the most sandstone universities in the state um i think in order for the law to actually be legitimate it needs to serve the interests of the people and needs to have the confidence of the people that it's supposed to be the framework to work within which i think is why i get frustrated sometimes with these types of things because mm. it doesn't fit and there's that cognitive dissonance between the offense that's being committed and the, the punishment, I suppose. Mm -hmm. So the thing about Gertie's law is it, um, this particular episode, episode two talks about sentencing and looks at it from all angles. So all the angles we've covered today. So that's the judge. They actually interviewed a number of current Supreme court judges, which is quite unprecedented. Um, and they've also interviewed, um, academics and the most, Um, relevant one that I thought about for this was they interviewed the victim Mm. um, of the murder. Yeah. Her husband was murdered. Yeah, I think she now works for the um, Sentencing Advisory Council from memory. Well, she's a victim's advocate now, Mm. I think, as well. And I found her thoughts to be the most interesting Mm. because she's come at it from both sides, right? So she was talking about how when it initially happened – she also was quite outraged by the way the justice system worked and the way that victims are treated in our criminal justice system. Um, but now that she understands that framework that we keep talking about, she's mellow, She's leveled out a lot more. There's less anger and more sort of motivation, I suppose, mm-hmm. to um, similarly get other victims of crime to... Um, to, I suppose, understand the system, navigate the system and to be able to work within that system? What did you think about it? Um, well, for me, it was more or less a refresher because obviously this is the
1: system within which I work. So um, it's not like I heard anything I hadn't heard before. But, yeah, I think you're right. I think um, it does a really good job in terms of bridging that divide between the criminal justice system, and the broader community. And um, what I also really liked about it was the fact that it really humanised a lot of the judges that actually imposed these decisions. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it drew attention to the fact that for most judges, the most difficult part of their job is sentencing, is actually depriving a person of their liberty, and what a painstaking exercise that is. Um, I also thought the podcast did a really good job in terms of drawing attention to the relevant sentencing principles and considerations and how sometimes those considerations can compete and conflict with one another. Um, But, yeah, I just think it just did a really good job in terms of making the law, like you said, really accessible to Mm. people. Um, If I went into
0: that podcast without any sort of legal background, I feel like I would have taken a lot out of it. Well, I actually didn't want to listen to it at all because I was like, I don't feel like being lectured to while I'm on holiday, but it was actually very entertaining. Mm. Like, not, obviously, the subject matter is quite serious, but it, it was interesting, it was engaging, and mm. really um, made those principles accessible, mm. which is exactly what, where, you know, that's the point of access to justice. What I wonder is why it took the court so bloody long to... Um, open their doors up a bit more and sort of unveil the mystery of the courts, I suppose. better like than never, I suppose. Yeah, no, Um, I agree. But um, I just think we as legal professionals have a huge responsibility to demystify it because. Agreed. And maybe not in our sector so much because we work with, you know, pretty ordinary people, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I guess you'd call them. Um, But with other lawyers that I know like sort of corporate and um, private practice, top tier type firms there mm. tends to be a lot of speaking down to people mm. and it's like people don't like being lectured down on mm. about things that is really something that should be accessible by all law mm. should not be something that's reserved for the privilege yeah absolutely right
1: i'd also really recommend listening to episode three of the podcast that specifically talks about the role that mental illness and alcohol and drug abuse play in sentencing um, because I know that's a really vexed area yes. when it comes to the public debate around sentencing because often the public perception is that mental health and alcohol and drug abuse are used as
0: excuses for yeah. lenient sentences. See, I thought it was really reassuring to listen to that as well because initially when I went into it, I was like, this would be an interesting episode. Um, but um, they were very much saying there's a high threshold. Mm. to. I think what I see is a lot of the, say, defence arguments. So I hear a lot of arguments from defence. I don't actually hear the end of it as to whether or not the court accepts that. Um, mm. So It's a high bar to meet as a defence lawyer. Like
1: you simply asserting that your client suffers from anxiety and or depression is not anywhere near enough to actually get them any sort of discount on a sentence. Um, And I think the podcast does a really good job in terms of saying, you know, you need to meet a certain threshold. You need a formal diagnosis. You need to show a correlation between the diagnosis and the offending and how it's going to impact on that person when they serve any subsequent sentence.
0: I think like I already knew sort of that the um, by reason of mental impairment is such a high standard. What I thought would really piss me off was um, the drugs issue because and I think um, to justice is it chief justice um are you talking about president maxwell yeah president maxwell Mm. i thought he addressed it quite well Mm. because he talked i'm pretty sure it was him it was a male speaker it wasn't yeah who talked about um the fact that the court expects that you do take an element of self-responsibility so you can't just take ice Mm. knowing that you have a propensity to act violently Mm. um assault someone and then say you're under the influence um that was reassuring to me because yeah. if you read a lot of media and stuff like that, I always roll my eyes at all the fucking ice people that go around, like, you know, iced up and go around bashing people and then like, you know, very serious assaults because, you know, ice as a drug makes you pretty... Um, Pretty. I don't know what would you violent like... <laughs> I mean
1: it, it's, it's not like cannabis where it calms you down no but it's
0: like pretty like generally people act very unpredictably and violently and, and a lot of strength to them too mm. I guess is the other concern because it's like super normal strength sometimes mm. um and just things like the the very dangerous driving the fatal dri- mm. um, driving incidents that have occurred in the last couple of years and that type of thing people driving under the influence um yeah, I get really enraged because it's scary knowing that someone may have self-inflicted this Mm. um, and, you know, led to this. And it was interesting because he was kind of explaining the intersection between that and mental illness, which Mm. adds another layer of complexity to it because, as you said, mental illness, if it can be established, it is, you know, considered. um, And, you know, it's relevant to the person's state of mind and their intent Mm. when they're doing whatever they're being charged with. But adding that drug drug aspect to it as well, I think just... It is a really vexed area
1: in sentencing where sometimes it's really difficult to figure out as a lawyer and or as a judge whether it's the mental illness that's contributing to the drug taking or if it's the drug taking that's contributing to the mental illness or if it's a combination of both. Mm. Um, so I think as a general proposition... Um, If you make a choice to take a drug, then, like you said, you can't rely on the taking of that drug as an excuse or as a mitigating factor when it comes to any sentence you get. And I'm relieved about that. Yeah, but if, for example, let's say you do have a diagnosed mental illness um, that makes you more prone to risk taking behaviours like taking drugs, then that is something that can be used as a mitigating factor in sentencing. So there is a bit of
0: nuance there. I guess the one final point that I wanted to make about sentencing and public perception is that the podcast actually um, alluded to a study that was conducted by Professor Kate Warner, who is also the governor of Tasmania, and she um, saw that a number of studies... So she did that very famous Tasmanian study about jurors and jurors' perceptions, and she said that um, a number of the studies that have been conducted demonstrated that when shown all the facts of a particular circumstance and the sentencing factors they must consider jurors tend to judge a lot more leniently mm. than judges
1: yeah it is a consistent finding across research
0: so i think the main takeaway from this is that there needs to just be more education about the way that our justice system works mm. to sort of um stem away from the emotional sort of initial responses. I do think um, you're right. Like, you know, it should be leveled towards policy change and um, a change in legislation. But I can also see the outrage on, just on a purely oh, emotional front. Me too.
1: And we're both ardent feminists and we both deplore family violence. So when you see it play out in the extreme way that it has with Boris Rostewski and Karen Ristevsky, it is jarring. Um, I remember when I first heard nine years I thought oh really that's it yeah like that was my honest knee-jerk reaction as a criminal defense lawyer it's only when I
0: well now we know a lot more than what we did initially because when they just handed it down they were like it's nine years six year parole yeah and I think one of my main complaints
1: at the outset was the fact that it appeared that he'd only entered in a guilty plea on the eve of the trial. Mm. But we've since found out that he actually was able and willing to enter in a guilty plea to manslaughter long before the trial, but that the OPP only accepted that offer on the eve of the trial. And that was
0: due to the fact they weren't able to admit evidence as to his intent. Exactly. Mm. So
1: there is a lot of nuance there and, you know, I don't expect anyone and everyone
0: to engage with all of that. I don't know. I think it's, it's just a huge mental exercise if it's not your area of practice. Like yeah. if you're just, you know, something else, like if you're a pharmacist, yeah. you know, you wouldn't expect that you'd know about all the sentencing factors, the mitigating, aggravating factors and all that stuff. I think people expect justice to be quite simple, simplistic. Mm. And sometimes maybe we do overcomplicate things, but it's a safeguard there as well for a reason. Mm. Um, but Yeah. Alright, well, we're going to talk about another podcast that we were listening to that has actually stemmed a lot of discussion. And so Usher Ginsberg recently um, conducted an interview with Christina Hoff Summers, who is one of those sort of old school second, second wave feminists. And essentially, um, she was invited here as a part of a series of debates with Roxanne Gay, um, comes from a very different brand of feminism. But essentially, her her views, and she's um what is she she is a philosopher and she teaches in gender studies she's i think in her 60s um and so from that sort of generation she identifies herself as a feminist a liberal feminist do you want to explain what that means (laughs) as opposed to other types Um, of feminism so liberal feminism is a really individual conception of feminism. So individual, like, as in you just think about yourself rather than the collective?
1: Yeah, exactly okay. right. Yeah.
0: So um,
1: okay, it's very much in
0: line with the
1: sort of emergence of capitalism. That's what it's associated with. And it originated mm-hmm. out of the States.
0: Okay, that uh, makes complete sense about the next couple of things right. that I'm going to say. <laughs> so some of the things that she's been quite controversial about is questioning rape culture in campuses. Mm. Um thinking that the uh, one of the arguments she said was that the factors that were being used to measure the prevalence of rape in um, American colleges was outdated and so it meant the numbers were inflated. Um, other things that she questions is the value of trigger warnings in universities um, and whether or not it actually helps or has some sort of therapeutic purpose mm-hmm. in including them. Um, And so those are the two main things that I sort of plucked away that were a bit controversial. She thinks that modern feminism is now heading towards, she called it the handmaid's tale type feminism where, or what does she call it? Fainting couch feminism where everything offends this next generation of millennial feminists um, and you can't get away with saying anything, men and toxic masculinity, are sort of the key things that women focus on, and we are essentially uh, responsible for a demise in um in feminism and what its objectives were meant to be, mm-hmm. um when it was first you know figured out, which is equality and um, equality of the sexes. So I was just wondering, what were your thoughts listening to this podcast? Mm-hmm.
1: When you recommended this to me, I was really apprehensive because... I wasn't.
0: I didn't even know who she was. Yeah,
1: see, (laughs) well, I am a really big fan of Roxane Gay's Mm -hmm. and I knew she was debating Roxane Gay and I went into listening to the podcast thinking, well, if she's not in line with Roxane Gay, then I suspect she's not going to be in line with me. Um, And I was right. (laughs) In what aspect? Um...
0: So, oh, God, I don't even know where to start with her. Okay, Um, well, let's start with the fact that we are now two trigger warning and two uh, fainting couch feminists. I think
1: she very clearly represents a privileged middle class white lady type of feminism, which is actually how I prefer to define liberal feminism. So just because the world seems quite fair for her as a middle-class white woman, Mm. she assumes the same can be said of women of different races and different socioeconomic statuses. Um, She's not a big fan of intersectionism. She thinks it's used as a way to conquer and divide and to basically say that, you know, Men here on one side, women here on the other side. Is that what she said? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, she said that she doesn't understand intersectionism or how. Wow, I must have missed that when I was listening yeah. to it. I just, it's really hard for me to like articulate my opposition to her because I just find it so draining, like listening to women like this. Um,
0: and a lot of them, though, are <sighs> from sort of the Germaine Greer side of feminism. So I feel, mm. and correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like there's been a bit of a generation war that's been occurring in the last
1: mm. number of
0: years where we've got an explosion of our millennial brand, I suppose I'll call it, of feminism. And, you know, it stems from things like Twitter, social media, um, blogs, and that type of thing. Whereas we've got a lot of older feminists who, um, you know, as much respect as I have for everything that they fought for, have very different views about what they mm. consider to be feminist mm. as opposed to now. And I don't think the two, we should be fighting each other. We're all fighting for the same thing, right, which is equality mm. of the sexes mm. um, and equity. But it seems like we perhaps go about it separate ways um, and have very different focuses. So maybe second wave gen- um second wave feminism, which is what Christina Hoff summers is from, um, issues of race and stuff was less of an issue. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, I think... It doesn't think, make sense given it's during the civil rights period. Yeah,
1: but, you know, you had a separate civil rights movement that fought on issues of race and then you had a separate feminist movement that fought on issues of gender. Right. There was some overlap, but they were still two distinct movements. Mm. Whereas now I think feminism, um, to its credit, is a much broader church and it does have people of different races, faiths and classes. Still not enough diversity, but much more than there was back in the 60s and 70s. Um but, you know, I can see how some of her arguments would be persuasive to listeners, so um, I do think that there is a lot of infighting between different feminists. Agreed. And I don't think that's helpful to the overall cause. Um, I do think there should be a healthy amount of debate, though, because feminism is a really broad church, there are a lot of issues and a lot of ideas, and we need to be able to hash those out with each other. And I didn't like it, for example, when she was recounting experiences of, you know, Thanks. students hijacking... Speeches that she was giving. Yeah, I, I didn't agree. think. Yeah, I didn't think that was entirely helpful of those people to be doing. Um, but I think this whole idea of, you know, ladies, we have it so good right now. Like, let's all be free, loving hippies, like I was back in my day, which is what she made reference to. Um, is really simplistic. What too. we're too uptight. Yeah. So, well, because she seems to be of the view that you know feminists nowadays are really black and white. Like men are the enemy. Yeah. Um, but I think her view of feminism is really black and white because it's, seemingly just this free loving paradise where men and women get along which is not at all the case Well, it like, never was that case in the 70s no and it's still not that case now like we still have like ridiculously high rates of sexual harassment sexual assault family violence that we've talked about time and time again
0: mm.
1: um, just because we're drawing attention to the fact that there still is a lot of um, you know discrimination between the sexes mm. is not us saying that men is the end like are the enemy? I
0: actually felt like some of her um, comments were persuasive when I was listening to it, again. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's that sense of perhaps maybe, and maybe it's the way we talk and that type of thing or what we surround ourselves with, but there is a bit of man-hating sometimes amongst feminists. I
1: think we do that in jest. Like when I say, ugh, I'm hating on men... I mean, first of all, I make sure I'm doing it in a safe space, like when I'm with someone like you, who I'm close
0: to. Um, But also, I'm doing it in the heat of the moment. It's not generally that I feel like men are terrible. I know, but I think the way that perhaps it is coming out in jest is that, and I'm saying this in the context of the current movement, where, as we've discussed before... There is a lot of pushback from like incels and like Mm. the underground type of guys who feel like they're being attacked because their masculinity is being questioned. Mm. And so I'm wondering to what extent maybe some of the ways that us as modern feminists have carried on is having that effect of isolating these guys from any sort of gender equality movement.
1: You know, I was having a discussion on this exact point last night with a friend where I'm actually caught up in a bit of a bind too because on the one hand I think feminists have really good reasons for being angry and being angry at the patriarchy and specifically, you know, middle-class white men that uphold it. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I'm well aware of the fact that you need those men on side in order to actually effect the kind of change that we want. So how much of our efforts should be directed towards placating men for lack of a better word yeah and how much of that attention should be devoted to us just actually saying how
0: fucking angry we really are and you know my views on that i've always Mm. been quite strategic and pragmatic in the utilization of men i suppose i don't think men should be shut out of these conversations about feminism because i think we need to use them they're the ones with the power Mm. um, but i know there's lots of feminists who don't think that they Mm. think that having men in the room especially for things like violence against women, campaigns and stuff like that, it takes up all the room and they take up all the space. Unfortunately, that
1: does tend to happen, that when you do open a space to men, that they do tend
0: to sort of hijack that space. But how much is that us giving it to them as well? Because all the praise we heap on them is like, oh, my God, mm. craps, there's a guy in here. Our, our, <laughs> our mission is suddenly legitimate. Yeah. Because unfortunately things do get legitimatized when you have guys involved. Yeah,
1: and I think there's a middle ground. I don't think you need to devote all your attention towards placating men or being angry at men. I think, for example, you can open up spaces to men but say if you are going to include them in a particular cause that um, you still reserve like leadership positions for the women in that group. So men are still participants, but they're not the leaders. Right. I still think that's including them, but making sure that they don't actually
0: hijack that space for themselves. One other thing that I want to talk to you about was about trigger warnings, Mm. which has been, I don't know if I've missed this. I mean, both of us like, are currently teaching at university. Yeah. Um, and trigger warnings haven't really featured much of this. I just... Um, We've done trigger warnings on this podcast. I know. Uh, I'm going to say something that's controversial, actually, because when... So we're teaching criminal law, mm-hmm. and when the issue of rape came up, and, um, you know, our unit chair obviously was very considerate and put a trigger warning, I was surprised why were you surprised because the practice of criminal law is gory um and of me thinks you can't actually engage with the material without knowing the full extent of the gore like i'm wondering mm. what the utility of having a trigger warning in that context is because mm. does it mean they can dip out like the student can't leave an essential part of the content Mm. for the unit. Maybe it means that the content is delivered somewhat differently
1: to that student, or maybe the student can then make some decisions about how they're actually going to go about studying
0: for the unit.
1: There might be particular cases they want to steer clear
0: from, um, or they might just want to do the bare minimum and do the prescribed ratings. I just wonder, what does it mean to be triggered? And this is obviously from Mm. a privileged perspective where I haven't experienced it.
1: No, I'm kind of the same. Um, I've kind of just taken it for granted that trigger warnings are something that are part of our culture now, but do they actually help? Like when, for example, Christina Hoff summers was talking about the fact that trigger warnings are really ineffective, I had nothing in response to that because I genuinely don't know the answer to that question.
0: Yeah, I agree because I she drew on um, some research, I think. It wasn't just out of the blue, mm. but she was saying that there's no research that shows that they actually work. And even just applied apply to our context now, I was thinking about other units that we teach in um, law. For instance, assault. Mm-hmm. If you've been a victim of assault, could you be triggered by the concept of us going through some of the cases involving assault? Mm. Is it the same Although,
1: as would you equate assault with a form of sexual assault? Like, I feel like the dynamics at play in those two situations are very
0: different. Perhaps. I just... Because I know they're using trigger warnings... Um, Broadly, mm. so um, for instance, they said that there should be trigger warnings on Thirteen Reasons Why because it deals with suicide content, right? Um, and issues of suicidality. And look, Thirteen Reasons Why is an extremely gory show that I would recommend any child watch, but I query whether or not it's useful in that con- mm. um, in that context because you're already in too far by mm. the time you get to the trigger point. I mean, having said that.
1: Um, At my previous job, I remember we would get these little blue books for our really serious indictable matters uh, from police. Yeah, yeah, and I have opened those. Yeah, me by too. Accident. Um, <laughs> gory, <laughs> and you know, I I found it helpful when someone would say to me, "Oh, hey." This is a pretty bad rape. Also, oh, you're pretty preparing bad. yourself
0: mentally. Yeah. Okay, right. So, I'm
1: thinking from that perspective. So, similarly, when the trigger warning was put up for the students studying the criminal law unit, I think it was done to help them manage how they were going to go about studying that content. It doesn't mean they don't have to study it, right. but that, they might just approach it somewhat differently. Because, for example, when I would be given a heads up about a really bad blue book, Call I call it a heads up now. I think the word trigger warning is now
0: too. Yeah. Like,
1: I think that's a pretty mild. loaded phrase. But yeah, it yeah. a heads up, I just, you know, little things like, okay, you know what? Um, I'm not going to look at this at the start of my day, right before I go into court. Yeah, because no, that's then I'm good. not going to be yeah. able
0: to do my job as effectively as I would in court. No, I think um, that's a really convincing argument. I think I'm going to call it the heads up. Yeah. I like that too. I don't like the idea of it because it's now tarred in this political correctness stuff. Yeah. And people like Christina Hoff so I'll just say, uh, read what she said. She said that the issue with trigger warnings is that they're being used to assert power. She says it, it it has no evidential basis for being in existence. Rather, it was something that stemmed from the feminist blogosphere. So it came out as a, a you know, a byproduct of that. I don't know how much truth in, is in that. What power um, would we be seeking? Is it – because trigger warnings aren't the same as censorship. Censorship mm. is, I see it, as an assertion of power because – you're censoring particular thing. Yeah, you don't have the choice to actually
1: access the content, whereas with a trigger warning, you're being emboldened with the choice still. It's
0: just how you go about actually exerting that choice. Mm. Well, okay, so you've solved that issue. I feel like this has not been as powwow-y as I feel. <laughs> I still do think I agree with her a lot in the sense that I think we are becoming – there's a lot of infighting going on at the moment mm-hmm. between different sections of feminism – and she's responsible for part of that. Absolutely. <laughs> but um, the other thing is that it, the infighting is often about really petty shit as well. Like, um, you oh, know, what? I'm just trying to think of an example that happened recently because I remember thinking this is so minute. Um, some of them, but putting, I'm just going to park that for one second and mm-hmm. talk about the intersectionality aspect, mm-hmm. which is, um, I think she's wholly lacking that in her analysis mm-hmm. about. Um, modern feminism because I think that's what we're doing well. Mm. And if that's the thing she's got issues with when she says that we're too sensitive, Mm. then she she is being a bigot.
1: Well, implicitly she is saying that. She's saying, guys, it's not that bad, and it's really easy for her to say that as a middle-class white woman. She isn't disabled. She isn't queer. She isn't a woman of colour. She isn't a woman of low socioeconomic status. Yeah, she's quite well off. Yeah, you can't speak to all of those perspectives when – you haven't experienced
0: them Mm. Um, just to go back to my part position Mm. about what um, shitty infighting some of the infighting that goes on I think I see a lot of it when we talk about like motherhood and choices Uh, so I feel like there's a lot of maybe not a lot but some feminists who derive people who decide to stay at home and look after children um, as being a non-feminist choice and I think the issue with feminism is that you're meant to be able to choose what you want to do yes but I also think it's okay to critique the context within which your choice is made. I think people are not capturing that nuance when they're doing it, though, and they're critiquing the person rather than the social conditioning and the choices that led them to being there. What Mm. I'm seeing is that people saying you're betraying the sisterhood Mm. by giving away your career to do this, but what if that is what the person actually wants to do? That's true. I
1: think, yeah, I think there's a real difference between critique and attack, so... I remember I was talking to our mutual friend, Mia, and she was kind of going through um, this mental exercise of deciding whether or not she's going to change her surname when she gets married. Oh, yeah, and things like that. Yeah. Little attacks on shit like that. Yeah, but for example, um, I was probing her as to why she was considering making that choice, Mm. but at no point did I think I was attacking her. I just simply wanted to know why she was making the choice she was making because we know no choice is made in a vacuum. That's right. It is informed by context. But even after, say, being aware of that context, you make that choice, that's your choice to make and that needs to be respected. But that doesn't still hold me back from actually engaging in a critique and being like, well, why? Why is it that you as the woman are only considering making this choice? Why isn't it also a reality that your partner is considering making this choice for you? Like, I still think
0: that's a useful conversation to have. I think you need to re- be really careful about sort of that nuance, though. Yeah. Um, attack the idea, not the person. Yeah. Um, yeah, because often people will receive it as one it. and the same. Yeah, exactly. Right. And it's not unheard of, like I've heard in other sort of social circle spheres, that um, people do unfriend people because of mm. things like this, mm-hmm. because of these life choices and stuff like that, which I think is a- an example of us not helping like that's not the true spirit of feminism which is Mm. to open as many doors for as many choices as one can make Mm. and so i think that is where she perhaps has a bit of um you know merit in what she's saying about modern feminism and some of the issues with it but you know having said that um second wave feminism wasn't perfect in and of itself it was very trans exclusive um very like very (laughs) it helped Jermaine, make kind of woman
1: And yeah, that's, that's my issue. Like I, I did not take issue with everything she said during that podcast, but it just struck me as so oblivious of the experiences of women that weren't like her. So that's why I found it quite painful to listen to, but informative nonetheless. And I do like the fact that, you know, from time to time, I still will engage with perspectives that don't resemble mine because I don't want
0: to be caught up in my own little intellectual bubble. I think that was the thing for me as well. And like Osha Ginsberg was at pains to explain that she was a bit of an unusual guest Mm. and wasn't someone he'd ordinarily um, engage with. Mm. But I think it's super useful for us to be exposing ourselves outside of that bubble that we've, I thought it was a really useful thing. It actually enabled me to refine my beliefs and my thoughts much better. Same. um, Same. And put those sort of nuances um, that's all the time we've got for this week. Um, Was that really long? <laughs> I don't know. We've rambled on for an hour somehow. Yeah. Um, Not bad for us. So hopefully we'll be back um, again soon doing another powwow. Yeah. And this time we're going to have two mic stands instead of the one mic stand that we're currently
1: using. <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right. Bye, everyone.